Go ahead and pick your speed up. You're number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello, I'm Hal Bryan. I'm senior editor for publications here at EAA, and it's my privilege to uh, welcome everybody to a special live episode of The Green Dot. Uh, with me right on my, here on my right is Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director, and on my right is Chris Henry, EAA Programs uh, Coordinator. I don't usually pass the microphone around to my right to, uh, to an astronaut, but on my right is uh, uh, we're, we're lucky to have uh, Apollo 7 astronaut Walt Cunningham, uh, also a published author of a great book called The All-American Boys, uh, one of the, the great uh, books written about the space program. And we're very fortunate to have him here in Oshkosh with us at Oshkosh uh, 2017. Welcome here, Walt. Thank you. You mixed it up a little bit. You should have introduced me as an ancient astronaut. <laughs> and believe me, answering questions is a whole lot easier than standing up and giving a speech, so I kind of appreciate this. And uh, as I look out there, I wonder how many, how many of you are old enough to remember, you know, the, the greatest space program we ever had? Oh, well, you must have been kids. <laughs> Boy. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to the questions and the answers because I've spent, you know, in the last 24 hours that we've been here, this has been the warmest, most grateful, most enjoyable kind of introduction to a museum that I've ever had. We just came to the museum. I've been here before, but I had not gone through that museum. And I want to thank you for all of that warm perfection and nice, niceness. I'm proud to hear that you've been given a proper EAA welcome, Well, and, and once again, what a privilege it is to have you here. Now, as we get going here, I wonder, could you tell us just a little bit about, I, I always like finding out from our guests, how did you first get interested in aviation? Even if, were you a little kid when you first thought about flying? How did I first get interested in aviation? Well, I, uh, I was born in 1932, so when the Second World War was going on is when I started following the the movies with the uh, the pilots in it, fighter pilots in it, and uh, I don't remember at the time thinking that that's what I wanted to do initially. But out, out of high school, I joined uh, the Navy, the Navy boot camp. Uh, I found out that if I could uh, pass a two-year college test, I'd go to flight training. It took me a year and a half to get through that and get through the physical, and then it took me about a year at uh, at Pensacola to learn that the only way I could be guaranteed single-engine fighter planes was to go in the Marine Corps. So I took my commission in the Marine Corps. Uh, I'm a retired colonel in the United States Marine Corps Reserve. And when I look back on my career, everybody thinks that being an astronaut must be the most significant thing. I have to tell you, I think the most significant thing in, in my experience and what it does for your future is the time you spend in the military. And I would recommend that everybody all the young people, I would recommend they have a couple of years in it because it's what it does for you mentally and prepares you for those things. But that's when I first became uh, interested in aviation, and it's a fairly long story of how it gets to eventually leading to uh, becoming an astronaut. So, well, uh, you had the rare privilege of being one of the really four crews in the history of the American space program to be the first manned flight of a particular vehicle. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what that was like, how that um, might have been different from a, uh, maybe another mission profile, things like that? 
what was it like to fly the first manned Apollo mission? People today, even those of you who are old enough to remember, may not have any idea of the fact that that was the third crew I was assigned to. And that's because it takes a, it's not easy to get off the ground. On Apollo, uh, our crew, Wally Shaw, Don Isley, and I, we were on what was called Apollo 2. Apollo 1 was uh, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. We were on Apollo 2, uh, North America, and it was the first time they'd been building a spacecraft. So there was a lot of development problems. We grew up with them. We were out there uh, developing uh, the technology, testing the equipment, and what have you. Uh, because we had no simulators, nothing like that, so we were, that's how we were developing our familiarity with the spacecraft. And what was happening is the changes we were trying to get North American to make, every one of them had a kind of a delay in the schedule. And of course, added cost frequently to the, to the thing too. Cost didn't seem to be a problem, but they sure didn't like to see the delay. After about six months on that crew, uh, they canceled our mission. And so we were a little disappointed for about 10 minutes because then they moved us in. We were the backup crew then on Apollo 1 because they were going to change the spacecraft, come out with a Block 2 spacecraft. So the next three months, Wally, Don, and I, we were the backup crew on Apollo 1. And, and those of you uh, that recall Apollo 1, uh, the, the crew died in a fire on the pad on January 27th. And back in, in those days, that was 1960. That was uh, 67. They died in that fire on the pad. We had performed the same test the night before, but the uh, hatch had been opened, so we didn't have, weren't on 100% oxygen, didn't it? So now we, the second time our, our job had been canceled out. But fortunately, three weeks later, we were told that we were going to be flying the first manned Apollo mission. 21 months later, we lifted off and uh, it was an 11-day mission, and to this day, I am, I'm proud to say it's the longest, uh, most ambitious, most successful first test flight of any new flying machine ever. And I don't know if it's ever going to be broken. Thank you. I think for so many people probably here and, and from a lot of our country, uh, Kennedy's speech you know, that we choose to go to the moon, the famous speech, really energized the country. Do you happen to remember where you were and how you felt when you heard that speech? I remember the speech, but that's not the most significant memory I had there. Remember he says we choose to do this not because it is easy, uh, but because it is hard. And that's an attitude that we had back in the 1960s, and I am very sad to say I see a deterioration in that attitude today, where you, you go out and do the things that are that are really hard for it. But uh, what I remember, in fact, it's uh, really when I decided to become an astronaut, is uh, before that, Alan Shepard was, going to, was uh, there for his Redstone, the first Redstone flight. I'll never forget that, because at the time, I had transferred into a reserve squadron so I could go to college. I hadn't been to college before. I was working on a doctorate in physics, working at the RAND Corporation. Uh, half time. So that morning, May 5th, 1961, I'll never forget this, I was driving from Canoga Park, California, over to Santa Monica to go to work. It was a little before 7. That was a little before 10, uh, down to Cape Canaveral. And I was listening to the countdown for Alan Shepard. 
and when it got down to the last five minutes, I couldn't even drive anymore. I pulled over to the side of the road and I parked. Here's why I remember this story. I listened to the count and got down to five, four, three, two, one, lift off. And then I heard this voice screaming around me, you lucky son of a <laughs> And I first, my first thought was, who's doing that screaming? And then I realized it was me doing the screaming. <laughs> Two and a half years later, I was sharing an office with Alan Shepard. And uh, that just was the beginning of an experience that I, I guess I'd say I didn't really fully appreciate that value of that experience until the last, last 10 years of my life, I began to fully appreciate you know, the significance of what that was. I apologize for my cussing. <laughs> I, I think we can forgive you without any trouble. Uh, quick question, well, at, at the time when you were in the Marines and you were flying, what, uh, what aircraft were you flying? At the time, well, I'd gone off of active duty, joined the reserve squadron so I could go back to college as a freshman when I was 24 years old, 24, 25. I've flown so many different uh, Marine Corps airplanes. I think I, I'd say I, I really fully enjoyed the A4D, uh, which I was flying at the time that uh, I got selected. But I guess my favorite toy was the uh, T-38 that uh, NASA had. And that was because at the time we had those T-38s, there was, we had 30 of us astronauts there at that time, first 30 guys. And we had 30 T-38s. <laughs> and we used, every place we had to go, we had to fly that airplane. So we thought of it as the world's last great flying club, believe me. <laughs> That's great. And I believe we still have uh, two T-38s down on Boeing Plaza from uh, Beale Air Force Base out in California, so if people want to get a look at a T-38, unless they've left, they should be right down, uh, right down there. So with that, uh, Ty, why don't, uh, if, uh, Walter, if you're willing, why don't we take some questions from the audience? So who has a question for Al Cunningham, right down front? Walt, my name is Raymond from Germany. I have a question to you concerning some, some newer things that are happening pre some presently. What? Some newer things that are presently happening. I read about, just a few weeks ago, that SpaceX is planning to put some astronauts around the moon, but on the other perspective that you did the flight, they want to just put spam in the can and don't want to give the astronauts any ability to manually override or change things during the flight, just put them on an automatic trajectory around the moon and get them back. What do you think of that? I think it's perfectly normal on what to expect today because as we watched as a result of the Apollo program and the technology that it took that we developed to land a man on the moon, we're still getting the payoff from technology that began right then, as you know, with your cell phone and these other things. At that time, we were developing the capability to do these things. That was a challenge in itself. Believe me, we enjoyed the ride, but a lot of engineers, I think 400,000 people in government and outside in civilian life had worked to uh, uh, develop that spacecraft and make that particular thing possible. Now, unfortunately, uh, a minimum number of the astronauts are actually uh, pilots today. Everybody had to be a pilot in those days. Uh, they're along for the ride. In the Russian spacecraft, there's a few things that they can do if they have to abort or things like that. But essentially, uh, from our perspective, they're passengers 
and our people are over there riding on that. Uh, SpaceX, uh, which I used to have nothing but doubts about, but I, when I watched him learn how to recover that booster, it's very impressive. Uh, when they end up flying, I guarantee you that the astronauts that are on board will essentially be passengers. Uh, they will be able to handle some things in the event of emergencies, but most of it will be oriented towards living in space as opposed to testing and working out on the spacecraft. Who's next? Uh, well, it's been said in retrospect that there were certain aspects about the fire that were good for the program because it gave them a lot of time to fix a lot of problems. The Saturn was not ready, the lunar module was not ready, and other than what they did to the CM to deal with the flammability and the atmosphere and the bad hatch, what other design changes did they put into the command module that they wouldn't otherwise have had time for? Uh, the question is about what other what were all the design changes they put into the command module after the Apollo 1 fire? Well, I think there was 1,040 changes that went into the spacecraft. And the hatch was one of them, because we, we had been working on that before. Uh, so it was a hatch that you could open from the inside, uh, which was not possible with the Apollo 1 or the Apollo 2. But in retrospect, as you look back on it, there were changes made to the systems. And part of it was because they never were able to pin down exactly the cause of that fire. We know roughly kind of what it was. They don't know exactly where or what have you. You know, all the spacecraft before that time had been operating in 100% oxygen, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo. 100% oxygen in orbit is 5 PSI. When they were doing a test on the ground with the hatch closed, uh, they were operating at 16 PSI on 100% oxygen. And the crew had been in that spacecraft for three or four hours because there had so many communications problems and other things on it. That test really only took about 12 minutes. I mean, the whole process they were going to do. But they had been soaking up 100% oxygen for that time, couldn't open the hatch. You know, the entire crew was dead in about uh, 13, 14 seconds. So they did make a change in that respect also. They agreed to start having a mixed, uh, you know, oxygen-nitrogen uh, environment in it. On Apollo, we lifted off. I think we were about 60% uh, uh, oxygen at the time uh, we lifted off, and then we ended up going to 100% oxygen. But 100% oxygen at 5 psi is not all that uh, risky, all that all that big of a problem. So that's the kind of the problems that went on there. But we went ahead and fixed so many things that we wanted to do operationally that were not so much technically oriented, just from the engineers at North American. But there were things that we wanted as a crew. Maybe it was just like uh, little uh, controls to keep you from accidentally pushing a, a switch on there. We didn't want to have that open. There was, that's just an example of it. But 1,040 changes were made, 21 months. People operated so different in those days that today, you know, in the shuttle accidents when they've had an accident, I think one of them was uh, 31 months to, to do what they were going to do to repair it, and the next one was uh, 35 or 36 months. So I'm saying things have changed with time, and anything that we can do to try to get people back to the good old days and what we were doing then I, would be greatly appreciated. Great. 
Who else? You all must have all yeah. the answers. <laughs> I know I don't. <laughs> if you read my book, you will get a lot of answers. Excellent. <laughs> the reason that book is still selling 40 years later is, and at the time I didn't realize, but my whole career, I guess I've been too candid on most things. And in the book, it was candid, and that's what people like about it now. And as I get older, I realize you can't really do that, or else you better take the consequences of it. In, in all the uh, re-engineering work that took place from Apollo 1 to Apollo 7, um, how, how much input was provided by the astronauts, and how many of the changes that they wanted were able to be implemented? Oh, you, pers personally, I, I don't know how much influence, because we, we worked together on a lot of those things. Uh, most of the changes that uh, we were able to accomplish were operational changes on it, because the, the equipment uh, we worked on for ages and we couldn't change a lot. For example, uh, uh, onboard computer in the uh, Apollo command module. We went to the moon and back with that onboard computer. And that onboard computer, which was used for our navigation system, was about, about I'd say about 18 inches, a cube about 18 inches. I think it weighed about 60 pounds. And uh, uh, how much uh, memory do you think we had in that computer? Uh, how many, uh, you know, uh, gigabyte? <laughs> Megabyte? We had uh, 40 kilobytes. That's right, 40 kilobytes, and 35 kilobytes we couldn't uh, address. We had five kilobytes we could work with. We used the octal system. But we thought it was the best piece of equipment we'd had up until that time in a spacecraft. Uh, little did we know what was going to happen in the future. <laughs> but one thing about that computer that continues to be today recognized as one of the best programmed computers in history. It was essentially crash-proof, right? Crash-proof? As in, you know, the code would not crash. It would continue to operate even when there were, there were issues, like what happened on 11. Well, that was true with the equipment, but uh, believe me, and this happened occasionally from time to time, the crew could screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say very quickly, before I came to EAA, I spent 15 years working for a company called Microsoft, so I know a great deal about buggy software. I consider myself an expert. Yes, Chris has crashed many computers. Uh, another question. How long does it take to get to the moon and back? How long did it take to get to the moon and back? Well, it was uh, about three-day trip to get there, three-day trip to get back, and then however much time they ended up spending there. And of course, they started out, the first one was a matter of hours that was spent on the, uh, on the surface. Uh, and that's how things develop. You start off getting your foot in the door, and then it, it, it gradually grows from that. I think the last mission, Apollo 17 and Apollo 16, too, I think they, I think they were there for like three days. Uh, and it had to be terrible, terrible living for, for three days in that tiny little uh, lunar module. Uh, believe me, uh, in those days, we would have given our arms to do it, those of us that didn't get to go to the moon, 
but it's because we, we would have put up with anything. But as you look back on it now, you, you wonder how we survived in that thin little uh, surface, a uh, tiny little vehicle, uh, you know, that we, we used to do that landing. Could you, uh, could you explain just a little, um, well, first off, I have to ask if anybody here uh, knows uh, or any of the stories about Wally Shira, you'll appreciate this. Did Wally Shira ever get you on any of his gotcha jokes that he'd play on people? Oh, yeah, Wally had played a lot of gotcha jokes. And I can't remember the ones he played on me, but uh, I did learn to just laugh about him instead of get ticked off about it. Wally was a very interesting, unique kind of guy, very fine aviator. We did a lot of flying together, very friendly, outgoing guy, but um, he did cause a pain from time to time while we were flying because uh, he was a, um, in the Navy, a captain, Navy captain. His parents had been both sides. Well, see, his uh, wife's uh, father had been an admiral and his father had been an admiral. And uh, Wally had always learned that whoever was the commander of that vessel out there was the one that was in charge. So when flight operations uh, uh, wanted us to do something that he didn't want to agree with, they got in their little fights on it. So I, he had his problems with it, but he was a very fine aviator and a very fine man. All right, so we have time for maybe one more question from the audience. Oh, I see a hand. Oh, Ty, do you have somebody already? I spotted a green shirt with a hand up over there. And there's a green shirt with a hand up over there. It's a battle of the green shirts. Maybe we can get you both in. Let's try that. Mr. Cunningham, you spoke earlier about the hard things. Do you have any ideas for us to inspire young people today to do the hard things? Do I have any ideas to inspire young people to do the hard things? Yes, I have some ideas. I. I think it's very thin to have those ideas get across, and it's because I've watched our culture change over the years. Uh, I'm sure I'm one of the oldest people here, and this may be the oldest person in here. But I reference it back to my life and those people around me where we were willing to tackle what was out there. And uh, fighter pilots, uh, they knew that they could be doing something that would kill them, but it did not turn them off. We went ahead to do the things that could. Today, our culture and our society has become risk averse. And that goes against what I tell. When I'm talking to young people, as I occasionally do, I have to tell them, you need to be willing to take responsibility for what happens to yourself. You need to make it happen. Don't count on other people taking care of everything for you. And believe me, I don't think our culture and our society has the obligation to make sure that everybody in here has exactly the same amount of things, the same amount of salary, and all of that. I think that there's always going to be winners, there's always going to be losers, and you ought to, ought to be telling the young people today that they need to do whatever is necessary to get ahead. We need to have equal opportunity, not equal outcome. Thank you, thank you. All right, one last question from the other green shirt. Okay, I think I have a question that can kind of draw this together. 
Now that we're several generations removed from people who witnessed the Apollo missions, and as you've pointed out, we have a different culture, we're more risk averse, we're more inwardly focused, we're interested in what interests us, not common goals. What do you think we need to do as a country in order to get back into some manned space programs and, and start exploring again? Yeah. What do I think we ought to be doing to get our country back to what we were then and have the attitude we, we did then? I would like to uh, be optimistic about doing that, but I, I am losing that optimism. Part of it, I'm sure, is because I'm getting older and I remember what it was. And some people might say it's because I have not been making the changes mentally or socially to what, what is going on. I think that as families, that's where this really begins, as families, we need to uh, uh, begin teaching our kids that. Quit doing everything that they want. Quit seeing to it that they don't have to work until they're 25 or 30. Now, I started working when I was nine years old. I don't ever remember having one bit of resentment for it because I looked at it as an opportunity to get ahead, to buy a bicycle, to be able to deliver papers. And my parents, they were good parents. I don't remember ever having a discussion about it or anything else. And that's because it was an attitude that we had. That attitude is changing. And it's related a lot to our politics. And I can't even, sitting up here, talk a lot about politics today because then it gets knocked that you're, that you're doing that. But I'm saying, please, please, try to teach your kids that what they have, what is owed to them is, is opportunity, not the outcome. Their outcome de depends on them. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. That's sound advice, Walt. And once again, we cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to come spend some time with us, spend some time with these people. Uh, big, big thanks to our very first ever live audience. This has never happened before. Give yourselves a round of applause or give each other a round of applause. Whatever. Thank you very much. For those that are listening, uh, thanks as always for tuning into this episode. Please head over to iTunes or Google Play and click subscribe. We greatly appreciate reviews and feedback on our blog, inspired.ea.org. And with that, we're going to bring this episode to a close. So until next time, when you're clear to land, thank you very much. <laughs>